What up, City of Champions? Today, I'm coming to you from the Pudong side of the Huangpu River in Shanghai, China. I'm here with my team shooting segments for an upcoming documentary on hockey in China. We've been here for about 30 hours now, uh, but it feels more like a week. Jet lag is kicking my ass. On the bright side, I can now say I've eaten chicken foot, and that I know I do not enjoy it. Like at all. So I can check that one off the list for good. You can catch all the travel adventures on the documentary Instagram account at Hockey in China. My guest this week is a man who has done more for disabled athletics than anyone else on the planet. Dr. Bob Stedward founded the Stedward Center for Personal and Physical Achievement in 1978 at the U of A, and over the last 40 years has helped change the lives of tens of thousands of those living with physical impairments. He's also the founding president of the International Paralympic Committee. I'm going to list a few of his awards and designations here to give you some idea of the scope of his work. Dr. Stedward is an officer of the Order of Canada, a member of the International Olympic Order and the International Paralympic Order, and an honorary life member of the Canadian Olympic Association. He was named a U of A alumni of distinction and earned the U of A Rutherford Award for Excellence in Undergraduate Teaching, the King Clancy Award for Outstanding Contributions to Canadians with Disabilities, and the Lowest Hole Community Development Award. He is a member of the University Edmonton, Alberta and Canada Sports Hall of Fame. That was three of them in a row, if you didn't catch that. And the Terry Fox Hall of Fame. In 2004, Bob was named one of top Edmontonians of the century. And most recently, and this is pretty remarkable, he was named one of 125 of Alberta's greatest citizens over the past two centuries. What have you done with your life lately, people? Affectionately known as Dr. Bob, the man has made a tremendous positive impact on so many lives and it's quickly evident in our conversation why he is held in such regard not only as a doctor but as a human being. Podcasters, I give you Dr. Bob Stedward. Dr. Bob Stedward, thank you for joining me today. You're very welcome. How's life treating you? Well, you know, uh, it couldn't be better, you know, when you're still looking down at the daisies, not up at them. So I guess that's always a, <laughs> always a plus. No, it's excellent. I like that. That's a good way of looking at things. Um, now, in my, my extensive research of you, um, which took a long time because you've done an incredible number of things in your life um, and had a very celebrated career in athletics, specifically dis- disabled athletes, um, I want to take everyone back to where it all started for you, and I don't mm. mean in that career, I mean in life. So you grew, oh, okay. up, you grew up in Saskatchewan. Yes, I did. I grew up in a very small uh, farming community in southern Saskatchewan, mm-hmm. and I guess like all uh, small town boys in Saskatchewan, you're involved in every conceivable sport that you could imagine. So. Uh, I played uh, a lot of uh, hockey, baseball, football, track, everything. And then, um, uh, and it was interesting, people always say, how did you, was there anything special that got you involved eventually in your life working with people with disability? Mm -hmm. And you know, there really wasn't, but the only thing I can think of was when I was young growing up, my grandmother had a stroke and so she lived with us, so Mm -hmm. she was paralyzed on her one side and she didn't have speech 
but I never considered her disabled at all. She was just grandma. Right. You know, so... Grandma's uh, got a thing. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So there was nothing unique or special uh, about that at all. And, uh, and then uh, I got to the point through uh, when I was growing up uh, that I wanted to bust out. I needed yeah. to do something more different. So I left home when I was about 15 years old. Mm -hmm. Uh, moved into uh, Regina, mm -hmm. went to uh, big city for you at the time. I'm big sure. big city for me at the time, yeah. And uh, and I lived in a boarding school called Luther College, mm -hmm. which really provided me with uh, great opportunities in sport because I played uh, played both uh, football and basketball and track and baseball with the school. Mm -hmm. uh, we won many. Uh, you must have been a block kid in school. Yeah, well, you'd, uh, well of course, uh, they had Letterman jackets. Yeah, you, oh, know? Yeah, and you had every single one. So you had all the buttons and stripes that you can. And, <laughs> and then I also played uh, uh, played hockey, too, at, a, at a quite a high level. I guess yeah. that I would consider it the college or university level right. in Regina. Mm -hmm. And then uh, and then from there, I, I moved up to Edmonton mm -hmm. back in 1964, summer of 64. So I want to ask you something like the career that spanned over 50 years and taking you around the world. Uh -huh. um, what did you think you were going to be when you grew when you were growing up in Saskatchewan? What did you What did you Holy What did you, you picture the future had in store for you? Well, you know, I guess when I left home at 15, I didn't know what was it going to be in store for me because I really my mind really wasn't thinking of a, a career, a profession. It was just thinking of uh, being the best that I could uh, in sport because I wasn't big, so I had to give it 110% effort mm -hmm. and work harder than everyone else uh, in order to succeed. And, uh, you know, I, I had very good success, particularly in track and field because I ran nationally for Canada and as, a, as a sprinter and that. So I did see some success, but never, ever thought of a career. And then as I was finishing off um, high school and coming to the university, um, I thought, God, what am I going to do, take at university? Mm -hmm. But I had a, um, a friend who was a couple years older than me growing up in Saskatchewan, and he came to U of A just before me, and he uh, he was in dentistry. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll be a dentist. Mm -hmm. It was sort of like, well, he's doing <laughs> it. And he was sort of my idol growing right. up. Right. And he was likely the most iconic dentist that ever came through the U of A. Okay. Worldwide authority on 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 particularly people when they bash their faces in an accident mm -hmm. that he rebuilt faces. Right. So he's very talented. But you know, so I started down that line and I sort of gave up on my whole the sports scene right. too much. And I said I wasn't very happy. So I got out of university for about a year and a half. Mm -hmm and started thinking more about a career. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, I'm going to go back into uh, Canice, right. you know, because there's got to be something in there for me. So I really took the interest in kinesiology. I wasn't very successful before, but I went from the outhouse to the penthouse. I went from not doing very well at <laughs> yeah. school, at university, yeah. to being the top of the class. So I just want to touch on a really interesting point because we're so often petrified by the fear of failure. Going into dentistry after your model, your buddy here, yeah. um, did you have any self-doubt or were you just like, well, I'll try it? Like, did you, Or were you worried about failing? And then also, you know, how did you recover from not 
doing so well in it? How oh, did you get I yourself was, back to I it? was totally in fear of failing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't that... But you did it anyway. Uh, but I did it anyway. And it wasn't that I was going to let myself down and my family. I was worried more about my friend who had such high expectations for me. Mm-hmm. But I developed that sort of that philosophy that you're not a failure if you fall down. Right. You are only if you stay down. Exactly. So I had to pick myself back up and, and look on the side of things that, that I felt were important to me that I could be successful at. Mm-hmm. So when I went into Canis, I got involved in a couple of classes in in, uh, in anatomy and sport medicine and flourished there. Yeah. And that what did you do in your time off? Uh, I actually, because I was pretty handy with my hands, I was worked as a carpenter. Oh, okay. So I went back home, took on a couple of projects back home, and uh, and I did that until I got back into university. And was there something about that profession where you knew you're like, I don't want to do this for the rest? Oh, of Oh yeah, <laughs> I mean, freezing my butt off at minus forty, pounding yeah. nails on a, on the rooftop wasn't my cup of tea <laughs> but you got that perspective to know all right oh, if I don't go back to school I'm gonna yeah. end up doing this so I better go back yeah. to school and I also work for Julian's masonry in Edmonton okay and uh, with bricklayers hauling mud and doing labor and uh, then getting the opportunity to lay the odd brick and block and that with some of the guys who were who were all immigrants who came over from Germany or Italy or wherever mm-hmm. And they taught me a lot about life, you know. Uh, their in- I helped them with their English, they helped me with life. Mm-hmm. And so so those kinds of experiences you put in the bank. Of course. And you just begin to say, there's going to be a time when I'm going to have to use those kinds of opportunities and experiences that you've had and uh, to move forward. Mm-hmm. So <coughs> I'm seeing a little bit of a common theme here with you. You've got, you've got the incident with your grandma when you're younger, though it might not have... Um, consciously affected you no. subconsciously potentially then you've got this group of immigrant workers that are your close buddies yeah. um, you seem to kind of have a penchant and then you start working with the physically disabled you yeah. seem to kind of have a penchant for the underdog uh, yeah I yeah. do I did and I still do um, you know I felt that you know in high school uh, I excelled academically and more so athletically. Mm-hmm. I mean, my first year in high school, grade nine or grade 10, I was starting in football with the football team and I wasn't that big, but I was fearless and I was aggressive. And um, same with hockey, same with baseball, etc. So, but So it, it did me well and I got a lot of opportunities to travel and perform and do that. Mm-hmm. When I came up to Edmonton and first met uh, a few people uh, with a disability and they came and asked me if I would help them start a wheelchair basketball club and start an organization I looked at them and they weren't getting any breaks mm-hmm. and so when I said that I would help them wherever I could <clears throat> it was which was in 1967 I really felt that when we started organizing the different sport groups we couldn't find a high school or a junior high that was accessible right. for people using a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. So I said, this is not fair. Yeah. So that sort of just pulled me in further and further and, and further. Hole, yeah. Because 10 years after I started with them, that's when I, I uh, created the, uh, the Stedward Center at the university mm-hmm. so that they had an accessible place 
to come and work out and also that they were able to develop skills that would help them to become more independent. Right. So it would open up opportunities for employment, for education, for living, mm-hmm. etc. So for can you tell about talk to us about so uh, not enough coffee yet <laughs> about all the things that go on at the Steadward Center when you started it and today where it is now. Yeah. Well, you know, this is uh, we're going to be celebrating our 40th anniversary mm-hmm. this this year in 2018. And uh, <clears throat> when I first started, I said, I've got to find a place where people with disability can come on to the university and have a, a and work with this equipment that I've been able to rummage around. Mm-hmm. And so at the time, the university was making a decision to centralize their libraries. So all the little faculty and department libraries were closing down. Right. So I saw a space where all the shelves and books were. Well, the day that they moved out, I moved in. (laughs) I didn't ask, Mm -hmm. I just moved in because I thought it was easier to ask for forgiveness and permission. So I took that over, Love it. had a session with the dean, and I said, this is what I'm gonna do, dean. This is my goals and my aspirations, my dream for these people, Mm -hmm. and I'll make it happen, and I'll make the faculty and university proud, which they have been since then. So that started off, uh, and it started off actually as a place for athletes with a disability to work out. Then I said, well, that's these athletes have got to come from somewhere. Mm-hmm. So then I expanded the program to all athletes who are just interested in their general uh, health and fitness and lifestyle and independence. So that started. And then a few years went down further down the line. And I said, well, we've got to make sure that we provide opportunities for young children with disability. Because right. I see them in all of these schools in and around the Edmonton area. and nationally and internationally, where they're not getting an, an opportunity. Phys ed, they go to the library, they sit in the side and, you know, and take notes or whatever. So we started a program for young children, which started off with four or five families, mm-hmm. and now we've got over 800 disabled children participating in the program. Yeah. So the, the whole center has just grown in leaps and bounds, and so we've gone from that little, you know, six or seven hundred square foot center that we made work for many years to a 17,000 square foot facility now that serves uh, uh, children and adults with disabilities, I say, from the womb to the tomb. You know, we, <laughs> we have them all. Yeah. And, uh, and all of their programs are individually developed to meet their interests, their needs, their capabilities. And, uh, and as a result now, the the Steadward Center has become really the the only unique center center in the world that uh, and we provide clinics and workshops all over the world to help other countries develop similar kinds of programs and facilities, mm-hmm. which have happened in China and, and Korea and Japan and and places like that because of my mm-hmm. international contacts. Because I suppose having traveled to nearly 150 countries in the world with my work with the International Olympic uh, Committee and the International Paralympic Committee as as the founding president, it it gives you a lot of opportunities to make a difference and to help other countries change uh, and get the same <clears throat> kinds of 
changes and opportunities that we've experienced here in Edmonton and Canada. What percentage of the work you do there with with the um, whether they're athletes or or just not able-bodied people? What percentage is physical and what percent is mental training? Well, one of the uh, when you're working with athletes and certainly over the years, uh, I worked with many many more people than just athletes with a disability. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you know, I worked in in the early days of the Stedward Center in back in 70, 78, 79 when we first opened with the Edmonton Oilers mm-hmm. concerned about their off-ice training programs. I worked with um, uh, Jamie Slay and David Pelche more on what was between their ears and not not their skates on the ice. Did you listen to my Jamie Slay episode yet? No. I podcasted with her a couple months ago. Oh, did you? One of my favorite episodes. She was great. But she talks about that specifically, about the mental aspect yeah. of her training and how she had to have the verbal cue. Stop. She would physically say, stop. Yeah. And she started psyching yeah. herself out. Yeah. Well, I worked all of that with her. I, ta- I taught them all about her and David about relaxation, focusing, concentration, rehearsal, visualization, and all that. So we went over that in, for time and time and time again. Mm-hmm. And, <clears throat> and so I worked with a lot of athletes dealing with that because as you look at any athlete preparing for competition, I mean, if it's for the Olympics, it's usually a four-year cycle because they're every four years. So mm-hmm. at the first year, an athlete's going to spend about... of the time in physical, developing the skills Mm -hmm. uh, and the fitness, etc., and 10 to 20% on the mental. And that gradually works and changes over those four years. So the last year, they're spending about 70 to 80% on on maintaining strong uh, mental toughness and only 20 to 30% on maintaining their their skill levels. Right. So it, it really does change uh, over the years and and certainly uh, Jamie and David were such were were perfect in that regards because they were very very strong back in 99 2000 uh, when they came together physically but they did nothing as far as preparing mentally. Mm-hmm. So when they won the worlds in 01 now all of a sudden you're the best of the best right but you haven't won the gold right and they're going to come to knock you off Mm -hmm. so we spent a lot of time that year on those kinds of skills as well and and i think one of the reasons why it worked out with them is i i wasn't their sport counselor Mm -hmm. uh, i was their life coach right because i took care of everything i took care of their community relations media relations i took care of their their bank accounts i set up their companies Mm -hmm. the whole shebang i was i I helped the entire the whole person right and that uh and that made a big big difference because they were certainly getting taken advantage of by a few other people who were in in their lives that right. damn near destroyed them. Right. Well, athletics is so competitive now that you need the support team. You need all the people behind the scenes taking Abs- care of all that stuff. Oh, right? absolutely. So they can focus on yeah. the one thing that's going to make them the best that yeah. they can be. And and that's what I always encourage. Not just Jamie and David, but uh, I, I basically took Brett Kissel from this the snot-nosed, little, <laughs> cocky high school kid, yeah. you know, to where he is today, in part because I had him for those first 
seven or eight years mm -hmm. and I really had to teach him some skills in life and survival mm -hmm. <clears throat> because at the time he was going down the wrong path right and it's interesting to listen to him even today when he's talking with the crowd when he's talking with the media he uses the same words that I instilled in him uh, 12 years ago it's incredible you, you did know? a fantastic job with him I only met him in the last couple of months mm. and he just feels like the most genuine down-to-earth person you'd, you'd ever speak with yeah and you know one of those people that makes you really feel like like you're the only person that matters when he's talking oh, to you he blocks everything he out. does and he and he's so good that way Shane he's uh, uh, as I've always told him, I said, Brett, you just make sure that hat always fits your head. <laughs> and you remember where you've come from yeah. and how you got to here. There were a lot of people helping you along the way. And uh, you're going to meet as many people going up the ladder as you do down the ladder. And so, you know, appreciate what all, everyone does for you to help your career uh, become a success that it is. And I mean, I knew nothing about the music industry and him and his mom came to me and said well would you manage Brett well, I said well what do I, I said well gosh you've managed <laughs> NHL hockey players and Slade Pelche and these mm -hmm. people and these people what's wrong with managing him well I know nothing about uh, about music right but I said look it give me a couple of weeks right. to think about it so I thought that would get them off my back two weeks to the minute at 8 a.m. I was at a rodeo down in Strathmore phone rang have you made up your mind doc <laughs> I said okay I'll help you right. but I said look at I'm not in it for any ego I don't need this job mm -hmm. I'm gonna help you as much as I can about life mm -hmm. uh, and facilitate your music uh, career but there's gonna come a point in time uh, when you are at a level where I cannot help you mm -hmm. and it did come to that and we Brett and I went on a couple of road trips down to Nashville mm -hmm. so we could meet more people in the industry and try to find someone in the industry who could manage him because right. I've always told every athlete whether it was Jennifer Heil or any of these people I said look at you've got to surround yourself with a team you can impeccably trust right so you do what you do and let them do what they do yeah and uh, and I've always pushed that uh, with the athletes that I've worked with whether they're athletes with a disability or non-disability doesn't matter right well I mean when you're it seems like you built really strong foundations for a lot of these people and when you're talking about the foundation it's the same no matter what you're oh. in right and see and that's you've hit on it Shane the principles are the same mm -hmm. the blocks of the building blocks are the same mm -hmm. it's just a matter of using those building blocks and that foundation and that individual mm -hmm. and then you try to work those two together to help them uh, along the road. I mean, they're all individuals and they all have their uniqueness. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, Jamie and David were as, were as different as night and day. and, uh, and But synergistic at the same time, right? Their oh, differences made them better together. Well, you know, and it was really interesting because, of course, as you know, David is very much a perfectionist. Mm -hmm. uh, Jamie is, is very skilled but she's she's not the kind of perfectioner that David was right. and as a result until they got on the high, on the ice together for the very first time grabbed onto hands it was like magic right and because they just had the right thing yeah but I also told them I know that it's not going to work 
they get married too, you know. <laughs> listen, they, listen to Doctor Bob. I know. But, you know, they had such different different lives. Yeah. Uh, I mean, David was. It's funny because they're in the, the same sport. Same sport, yeah. but he was brought up in the in Sebec and the Gaspe Peninsula. Very strong, uh, traditional uh, mm-hmm. French Canadian family. Jamie was from Redneck, Alberta, from up at Athabasca. Where, and, and it was really funny. The funny story about <laughs> Jamie Salé is that um, uh, Randy Gregg and I had our sport medicine clinic together. Mm-hmm. And so I was uh, down at the Royal Glenora and, and had met Jamie for the first time. Well, she had some aches and pains, well, and she wanted to talk to me about her career. So this was in ninety. Two, I think, or ninety-three, leading up to Lilyhammer. So she came over to the clinic, and uh, we started talking. And I said, "Well, remember, Jamie, you said you're a minor, so I have to share things with with your parents." Right. Well, my father's in Red Deer, my mother's in Edmonton. They're they're not together, so that's that's fine. So her her mother called me, and you know, and I was talking to her and then within a minute she said Bob don't you remember me I said oh oh <laughs> I to go back <laughs> the mental Rolodex where the heck did it go right and and it happened well I didn't know the name Salé mm-hmm. and uh, and Jamie's mother was a Stitchin oh, okay and Stitchins lived next door to my parents in Athabasca and were oh, best man. friends no way so I knew uh, I knew Patty when she was a young girl growing up in in Athabasca. Even though I didn't live there, right. I I mean they yeah, I got my gas at her dad's there. gas station. Yeah. She her sister worked in a liquor store. And I knew them all. Yeah. So all of a sudden, a professional relationship became very much a family personal relationship. Mm-hmm. So of course, Jamie was even much more special for me and to me at that time because mm-hmm. she was family. Pressure's on. Pressure was on. Um, I want to talk about uh, what the Oilers viewed the physical the physical testing or training mm. that you instilled when when that started back in 78, 79. Yeah. Because not a lot of those hockey players were used to a physical uh, regiment. No, not at all. But, you know, it was really interesting that... Uh, um, when we first started off, we f- first of all need to know how can we help them uh, become more fit so that when they, because most of them were used the season to get fit, right. as opposed to taking advantage of being fit when they came to the start of the season. So uh, actually Dave Dryden came to me because Dave Dryden at the time was playing in the world hockey mm-hmm. with the Oilers. Um, and the last year of the World Hockey for Edmonton before they went into NHL, Dave had retired. Mm-hmm. But the Oilers had asked him to stay on to help with a bit of player development and use you know his skills as a veteran to for some of these because he knew they were going to have a bunch of young, crazy kids on yeah. the team. Yeah. So that was fine. Uh, so Dave and I knew each other, so he came to me, because we'd worked on a couple of projects. Actually, the 77 National Wheelchair Games were held in Edmonton, and Dave was our chairman, and I was working with him on the games. So he came and he said, you know, can we evaluate these guys? Can we measure them? Are there tests that we can tell? 
and show them on paper and right. show slats on paper that look at this guy ain't in shape yeah you quantitative know? and what can we do to get them from a to b mm-hmm. or they have an injury and they're down here how do we get them back up to where they were right so i said absolutely we can so uh once say there was um bought into it mm-hmm. uh, how did you get him to buy in well uh, you translate it into yeah, winning you say look Slats is very smart yeah. he knew I mean he was he was the most brilliant sports psychologist without having any any education but That's he knew how to handle any. people and he knew and he knew the important thing was winning mm-hmm. and if he could think he could get the competitive edge on every other team then that would happen so so he agreed that we'll try it but it's not going to interfere with this this and this right. but we'll I'll make sure that the players have to do it and it, and so we tried to make it fun mm-hmm. uh, we tried to make a couple of of the tests that no matter what kind of condition you you'd be able to successfully complete it right and yet also have a couple of competitive tests because right. we knew how competitive they were yeah. so the high in, high intensity bike you know where you crank the old resistance right up maximum and see how if yeah. they can last for 30 seconds or not 30 right. something nothing yeah i don't think we had one guy that lasted like, okay seconds. okay i got you you know yeah. so there was competition there and so it really worked out quite well mm. uh, and at about the same time uh uh, a colleague of mine, Howie Winger, who's, who eventually took it over from me, we did the Olympic team, then when he moved out to Vancouver and Gretzky went to LA, he took Howie down there with him and took him out to New York with him as well, um, And because Howie was uh, started doing it basically uh, full time. But Howie had a contact in Philadelphia, so he went down there. Well, how mm-hmm. are you going to get the Broad Street Bullies to buy into this? Are you kidding? We just beat the shit We don't need to. Yeah, we don't need to be fit yeah. to punch you. But the, and I can't remember who the coach was at the time, but he said to Howie, he said, Howie, if you can, if you can get uh, Bobby Clark to get on there and do it, mm-hmm. everyone will do right. it. Right, of course. The and leader. so Howie humbled him into it. and. And then it went from there to every team doing it. Right. So it was, uh, it was good, and, and it was it was quite in, quite in, quite enjoyable because yeah. the guys, uh, I think, took it seriously after a year or two, knew right. how important it was for them, and started to see the results. Mm-hmm. And that's who surprised you out of those guys. Was there anyone that you looked at and you just said, "Oh, this is going to be a rough go for you," and 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 they jumped out ahead, or or the or vice versa, or someone. Someone you thought was going to crush it and was actually in not quite as good a shape as you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There were a few pudgy guys there that uh, <laughs> that uh, and 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 the and the guys at that time too. Of course, the the players' association wasn't very strong. No. So and and we certainly wanted to make it clear that we didn't want slats to be using that as a reason to to cut the guy or to trade him. Right. And uh, and it really worked out that way. Certainly, Slats got the results, uh, you know, and, and we compared them to athletes in other countries and other sports. And so we saw where they were and where they could be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't think there were any real surprises mm-hmm. one way or the other. There was always four or five guys who were who loved to train anyway so they were fit and they were right up there right there were other guys which guys were those 
a um, lot of the small forwards that okay. we had at the time. Okay. You know, uh, a couple of three of the Europeans that we had that were, you know, oh, what's his name from uh, Czechoslovakia? He was pretty stocky and and wasn't too fit at the time. But you know, but he lost weight and he got mm. fit. Yeah. You know, um, so it it was uh, it really worked out very well. I mm -hmm. I felt the guys the guys eventually. Didn't not that they didn't look forward to it, but they knew they had to do it, and right. they and they had fun doing it, and they started getting more competitive with one another. Right. You know, I want to see your VO two max, and you know why <laughs> they gamified it essentially. Right. They very much gamified it. Yeah, yeah, that's really sure. interesting. Yeah. Um, what was uh, did you test Grant Fear his first year? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. How was Fear? And team? you know, it was really interesting because they would give him such a. Come on, Butterball, let's get you up here in the bike, you know. And he was, but he wasn't that bad. Wasn't that he bad? wasn't the worst in the team. Interesting. And then some of the guys said, holy shit. Yeah. But as I said, you know, you know, genetics has a bit to do with that. You of know, course. your genes are going to help you to a certain degree. Yeah. And that's what likely helped him to a certain degree. Yeah. But uh, he wasn't an all-star, that's for sure. That's okay. He was on the ice where it counted, right? That's exactly it. But he also took it seriously enough to start losing weight, getting mm -hmm. a bit more in shape and mm -hmm. taking it seriously. Mm -hmm. I mean, Ranford, I mean, he was a fitness nut. He right. was always in very, very good shape. Right. Um, so it was, uh, but uh, yeah, Grant, I always give him a bad time every time I see him. I, said, uh, do we need to get back in the bike, Grant? Yeah, I don't <laughs> do that anymore. Well, uh, we were talking to Pronger in uh, St. Louis oh, for, yeah. um, for Fuhrer's documentary. And Pronger, which I didn't realize because, you know, 06 was when I was 18 years old. So I saw Pronger right. in his prime and this defenseman who's playing oh, yeah. 30 minutes a night in the playoffs. Yeah. I thought he was always like that. But he told us, he goes, I, you know, I, was, <laughs> I wasn't a fitness guy at all when I came into the league. I, I, I relied on talent in junior. Yeah. And then he got into the NHL. He wasn't very good his first couple of years. Yeah. Three years after he uh, started with Hartford, he got traded to St. Louis. And he goes, I was always glad when Fierzy was on my team because he was the one guy I knew that would probably not <laughs> not as fit as me not be as, I, he was the one guy I could rely on to come behind me in the fitness test <laughs> yeah that would be it yeah. so it's, it's oh, an gosh. interesting take but of course that was after Fierzy started working with uh, Kersey Yes. And, and he turned his career around at that point in his life at 35 years oh. old, already been in the league for 15 years. That's and, right. And new, new revamped uh, dedication to yeah. fitness and allowed yeah. him to play a few more years. Sure did. So in all the Oilers stuff, the Stedwards uh, Center, uh, you also managed to do something pretty amazing with international Paralympic sports. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. how, how did that start? Wow, that was, that was likely the, the greatest part of the yellow brick road I was I was on mm -hmm. I I was working internationally with the Canadian team um, back in uh, since 1980 and uh, oh, or it's 1970 sorry mm -hmm. 70 and after about 10 years I, I saw the whole international sport for athletes with a disability starting to grow and it was starting to include more than just athletes, spinal cord athletes using a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. Visually impaired were coming in. Right. The deaf were coming in. Cerebral palsy were coming in. So there were a number of different athletes with different disabilities started to collectively come in. Right. 
And of course, uh, these guys previously had all just been labeled in one category, disabled. Uh, but in reality, there's a huge variation. Well, there's a huge variation in the nature and the severity of the disability, Shane. But also, the only organization existed was for spinal cord injured using a wheelchair. Right. So. Uh, sport for visually impaired and cerebral palsy and and these other sp uh, athletes and amputees didn't start until late uh, mid to late 70s and uh, what are we going to do with them they can't compete against one another because mm -hmm. it doesn't make sense mm -hmm. so they form their own international organization so now all of a sudden we've got six international organizations that all are going in their own direction independently and yet the IOC said we're not going to help you uh, at all unless there's one organization right you know you have to come together because what was happened there would be a meeting uh, of the six groups and there'd be three from each group there'd be the president mm -hmm. the secretary general and the technical officer of each of the groups right. so those 18. 18 people were making decisions on sport in the world where they didn't have a lot of expertise. Too many unexperienced cooks in the kitchen. Totally. Yeah. So what do I do? Stick my nose in. So what I did is I said, okay, well, I've got to find a way of bringing them together, creating one organization, and moving it forward. So I... Uh, I wrote a proposal. Mm -hmm. I designed a structure and governance for a new world body for athletes with a disability. Uh, I went to the IOC back in just in the 8081 in that neighborhood and uh, said we've got to have a relationship and I met Sam Ranch and blah 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 and a couple or three years later nothing was moving so I took that proposal mm -hmm. and I sent it around the world who would ever read it yeah. listen to it so let me ask you what year was that that you sent that around the world 84 how did you go about sending that around the world I just got the contacts from every addresses address, put on 97 and it was a lot of snail mail licking stamps <laughs> and it was uh, arduous it's uh, incredible I was the president of the Canadian uh, federation of the time of sport for athletes with disability and a uh, gal that worked for me at the time was relentless you know she was so good mm -hmm. I mean we were both cut out of the same hunk of cheese I think because we worked <laughs> so well together and we started sending it out to everyone we particularly focused on countries that were more open-minded democratic you know the Norway's the Sweden right. the Denmark's mm -hmm. Germany France places US things like that so as a result of that proposal going around <clears throat> we held a special meeting in the Netherlands in uh, March the March the 23rd 1987 mm -hmm. where 41 countries came together and we gave other countries opportunities to bring their proposals right. and we had a two or three year two or three day debate the end of that third day we came up with 23 resolutions. So you took all the best parts of every nation's contribution. Yeah. Interesting. And I would say that 90% of it came from my paper. Mm -hmm. There were a few good points that were brought up that were embedded. Right. But uh, you spent your life dealing with Dealing with it, and, you know, and I suppose because my vision was such that uh, 
there hadn't wasn't the same vision in some of the other countries. They were just prepared to go along with mediocrity. Right. So the first thing is that we had to be structured as a sport, mm-hmm. not as a medical disability. Right. Uh, secondly, we had to have representation by nations and by athletes. Uh, thirdly, we had to work towards integration and inclusion with the IOC and other international federations so that our canoeing people would link in with canoeing, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. So we had all of those uh, uh, aspects down and we appointed uh, seven people from around the world to take those 23 resolutions to take the proposal, which was basically mine, and to come up with a uh, constitution and bylaws that we could consider. So that same time, uh, about a month or two later, I'd met with Sam Ranch in Calgary Mm -hmm. and said, I got a proposal for you. And I laid it out, I verbally Mm -hmm. told him. And he said, put it on paper, come to Seoul next year, sell it to me, and I'll help you. So I got her down and uh, took it to him in Seoul. So come back next year. Came back the next year. That's a lot of waiting. I know. Like that's, but you must have had incredible patience at that point. I I did, you know, uh, and I've always believed too, you know, that perseverance, you know, Mm -hmm. failing 20 times and being successful in the 21st. So, I went when I went to Sam Ranch. He was very receptive. He liked what he what he saw, and then uh, so he said, "Go away and create the organization." And so, September twenty second, eighty nine, in Düsseldorf, Germany, uh, we started presenting the the. Um, in fact, before that, at the Paralympic Games in Seoul. Mm-hmm. Uh, three weeks after I'd met with Sam Ranch, we were discussing, hoping to set up the organization there. Right. But it just about imploded, the arguments, the fighting, right. and this and that and the other thing. And because people were focusing on their teams and the competition, right. so. So maybe I'm not understanding, how was there Paralympic Games before there was an International Paralympic Committee, IPC? Because they functioned as six different organizations okay, so they that were just still, came together. Gotcha, they were still operating, but yeah. there was no, no And the Paralympic them. Games, they, they weren't very, they weren't anywhere, they're light years ahead now compared to what they gotcha. were. Okay. Uh, because uh, in the early days there was only spinal cord injury involved there was only one organization that helped that the others weren't involved so the official international Paralympic Committee was founded in 89 in Düsseldorf Germany not unlike the Olympics Mm -hmm. the modern Olympic Games were in 19 1896. Mm-hmm. Before that, there were Olympic Games. Right. But they just weren't called them, they weren't organized. It goes back to Roman times. Ours is the time. same. I consider I consider the Seoul game, because they were in the Olympic City, mm-hmm. was one organizing committee, all disabled were together. Mm-hmm. I consider that the start of the modern Paralympic Games. As you as the president of that organization. That got elected that next year because right. we weren't on paper yeah. uh, an organization yet. So in Dusseldorf, uh, people couldn't understand and get their heads wrapped around 
this constitution bylaws. Mm -hmm. So what had happened, I got up and I said, okay, uh, because how, how can you get a democratic constitution bylaws when you're dealing with uh, Russia and Iran and Iraq and Norway and, and Somalia Turn and all democracies. that? You can't. <laughs> so I said, well, rather than do that, let's just accept in principle the creation of the International Paralympic Committee, mm -hmm. elect uh, an executive, and have that executive do this right so we had the election yeah. and that's where I was elected as a founding president and my uh, my executive was holy moly there were some interesting <laughs> bandits there right there was Valentin Dickel from from Russia mm -hmm. who was regarded as the strongest person in the world he worked with the Moscow circus he would drive two v two cars up on a platform and lift up the platform. He was one of your executives. He was one of my executives. Did he fit into a suit? Uh, uh, eh? Did he fit into a suit? I would say it would have to have been about a size 65 suit. He was monstrous. But you know, he, d he didn't look like some of our football linemen. Right. This guy was built. Mm -hmm. And then, um, then I had a fellow from Iraq mm -hmm. Who was, uh, who was an amputee, who was a bomb expert and lost his arm mm -hmm. uh, taking a bomb apart. And he was uh, a member of the Iraqi Olympic Committee. Um, very, very devout Muslim. And we would have executive meetings and after the end of the night, you go out for a beer and pizza or something, no matter where you're at. Yeah. So I'd come home at midnight or one in the morning. He would still be sitting on the floor outside my room because he wouldn't go to bed until he knew I was home safe. Wow, what a guy. He was very overprotective yeah. of me. Incredible. So I had all, people like that, <laughs> stories like like you wouldn't believe. Anyway, so so we created IPC mm -hmm. in 89. Mm -hmm. And so from then on, it uh, became uh, uh, the International Paralympic Games, Summer and Winter Games. Mm -hmm. uh, I Throughout this time, uh, from... Uh, 88 when I presented to Samranch and Seoul until the year 2012 it took me 12 more years yeah. to get a formal memorandum of understanding MOU signed yeah. by Samranch IOC mm -hmm. and myself 12 right. years so the IPC existed but it wasn't until 2000 that the IOC acknowledged and officially accepted the IPC formally formally I, at the time, I was always uh, involved in IOC meetings. Mm -hmm. I was on all of their commissions. Mm -hmm. Sam Ranch was very good about including me in, in the Olympic Games. Mm -hmm. And you know, and it's really, it's, it's funny for the reputation he seems to have that no one likes him, he's divisive, he's underhanded, he's crooked, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. We didn't always agree on things, but we respected each other enough that I think he'd go to the end of the earth for me. Right. He was very supportive. And any time I got myself into a bind, he was there that I could phone up, I could mm -hmm. go over and see him, and he was always very, very good. So we were, we were always formally recognized. Mm -hmm. uh, from 88 on, it was one organizing committee for both games. Right. Um, when you bid to host the Olympic Games, you had to bid to host the Paralympics as well. Yeah. So it was basically one celebration. Right. 
And so that's all it was, even though we didn't have a formal MOU. Gotcha. But that MOU was the seal. Right. Now, all of a sudden, we're legitimate. So that brings us to the significance of 2000 in Sydney, because mm -hmm. that was the first games where it was solidified officially. Yeah. Is that correct? That's correct. So talk about what that meant to you personally. Uh, and some of the challenges that I understand you faced. In yeah, the well, I still, I still faced a lot of um, a lack of respect and acceptance by many of the IOC members mm -hmm. until I, even though I had been involved in the Olympic family from 84 mm -hmm. on, I really didn't have any credibility until I was formally uh, had the MOU and formally elected as a member. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, it changed. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing how something like that happened. But I didn't always, I didn't just have challenges with uh, IOC members throughout this process. I had challenges within my own organization because I was fighting like hell for integration. I was fighting like hell to to get our our athletes recognized in the international bodies in the IOC and some people just did not want integration because they felt that it would take away from our athletes mm -hmm. and they didn't always agree that the Olympic movement was uh, was the best place for us to to be right and so I was having internal and external mm -hmm. challenges uh, when it came to marketing and uh, sponsorships and things like this, it was it was a real challenge. And uh, how did you not let your personal passion for that topic cloud your business judgment when it came to that? Like, because when someone when someone w didn't want to include you, it must have just made you absolutely furious because this is your life's passion. This is your yeah. life's work for so long. But you know, I, I guess I never lost sight of the dream. Right. I never lost sight of business principles and so I just had to say the timing's not right, I don't agree but I'll accept it mm -hmm. and the time will come when I will win the war. You're playing the long game. I was playing the long game. Good. I will outlast them, yeah. you know, I'll outwork them, yeah. you know, and uh, I believed in myself and uh, I believed in passionately our athletes that they deserve the same recognition. I mean, some of the athletes with disability around the world are some of the most incredible people and athletes you'll ever mm -hmm. ever uh, meet. Mm -hmm. But it was uh, it was very difficult. But I, I I I so remember sitting in the room with Samaranch with that pen shaking because. <laughs> Finally, yeah. the dream is partially becoming a reality mm -hmm. because formality is taking place. Mm -hmm. I mean, the media room was jammed to the rafters, and uh, and Sam Ranch was so very complimentary, unbelievably so. And uh, and during this whole time, I was visiting nations, trying to trying to get them because we only we started with. 40, 41 members mm -hmm. in 89 and when I left as president 12 years later we had 175 
So I had to travel to those countries and convince them to to buy into what we were trying to do, mm-hmm. work with the National Olympic Committees in those countries to help them achieve. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was also working with uh, with the United Nations uh, on an IOC commission on peace and truce. So going into nations where where they either institutionalize anyone who was injured in war or famine or health or killed them. Well, I don't know what they did, mm-hmm. but they didn't seem to be around. So there was, you know, the more I got involved in trying to make a difference and leave a legacy in this world, uh, it was uh, the deeper my passion became. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I just wasn't prepared to give in and give up. Yeah. Uh, if they said no, I must have asked wrong, <laughs> so I'm going to change my tactics, mm-hmm. you know. And <clears throat> I remember sitting in a in a boardroom with a couple of IOC members and a couple of staff members from the uh, 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 from the IOC because there was a huge debate mm-hmm. about our sponsorship and our marketing, and uh, the British Olympic Committee had complained that they were having a difficult time raising money and they thought it was because more money was going to the Paralympics and they were taking money away from us. You know, give it a break. So I had a really a, a down, it was crazy. So when I had that meeting, one of the IOC members sitting there looked me right in the face as close as you and me and had his finger up right up into my face. Mm-hmm. He said, if you don't change your logo and your marketing program, we will crush you like a fucking buck. <laughs> and what did you say back to him? I just said, well, I'm sorry you feel that way, yeah. but uh, we're going to work with you and to make it successful for both mm-hmm. and give us an opportunity and we will, we will make it work. Wow. Incredible restraint shown oh, on your part. Because you told me you were a feisty guy back in the day. Oh, yeah, I was very. Must have taken all you had not yeah. to just reach over and just crank him. I know, but I <laughs> but I couldn't, but I was still... Because you had the cause in mind. Right? I had the cause in mind, but I was still pretty feisty. I mean, you ask a lot of the people, some of the older IOC members, they'll, they'll certainly let you know that I, I was like a little bull terrier. I wouldn't let go of that leg. Yeah. And I, was, I would push them, I would push them, I would challenge them. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, and when you look at it today, the Paralympic movement is the second largest movement in the world now. It's, yeah, it's gone leaps and bounds mm-hmm. over the since we were created in '89. Yeah, it's absolutely remarkable. Yeah. Uh, so, what are your feelings on you know doping in sports and this, the scandals that continuously come up year mm-hmm. after year? It seems to be more prevalent sometimes. But yeah, yeah. I know in Sydney you faced some challenges, and you had to basically throw the baby out with the bathwater in a couple cases. Yeah, um, it was, we had some tough times, but you know, I look back on it. Um, during the earlier days, even before the IPC was created, a lot of people with disability were on medication, mm-hmm. supposedly for their disability. Mm-hmm. And we were finding that as our athletes became more and more fit, more and more talented, there was less of a dependence on some of this medication that was on the ban list. Mm-hmm. And so we really struggled. How do we do that there? The doctors subscribe this for spasticity or for blood problems or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Well, we bit the bullet. We just said, sorry, there's other drugs. Mm-hmm. 
and there's ways of getting yourself off of those drugs. So we saved a hell of a lot of athletes becoming uh, potentially addicts or very dependent on medication, prescriptive mm-hmm. drugs that they were having. And we instituted a very, very rigid uh, program for uh, for testing. Mm-hmm. And we implemented it, and it was more stringent than the Olympic uh, program. And, uh, and, and we never had a lot of people that got caught, but there were some, more so in those that tend to, you know, the powerlifting, weightlifting, that tended to bring it in more there. Uh, but I was I was absolutely uh, against giving anyone the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. If it's positive, mm-hmm. you you suffer those consequences. If you've let a team down, that's yeah. too bad. You know the rules. Yeah, I dumped out the likely the best men's wheelchair basketball player in the world from U.S. Mm-hmm. and the entire team lost their gold medals as a result of that. Mm-hmm. But you know, and he was he was hated me with a passion. He went to the arbitration of sport and lost there. Right. So the Americans finally realized, well, he shouldn't have been drugged up. Yeah. There was no reason for it. Right. But he did. But then a non-drug related one was we were really getting pressure from athletes with mental disability to become part of our movement. Mm-hmm. Special Olympics always had their own organization and they weren't there for winning gold, silver, bronze, and being highly trained athletes with mental disability. It right. was more recreation, everyone wins, yeah. everyone gets it's the inclusion. It's the inclusion, yeah. and I understand that and I support it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was still a group of people around the world who had athletes that they felt that they trained hard enough, knew the difference between right and wrong, they would do it, mm-hmm. and, and winning and losing. So that was fine. So. The mistake that I made is in 2000, leading up to it, because they hadn't been involved very much before. In 88, because of the strength of Special Olympics, we were only able to offer a couple of demonstration events for uh, for mentally disabled athletes. Mm-hmm. But then after that, we said, well, we'll bring them in as full mental sports. But the mistake I made, I didn't get a strong group of professionals to develop and design a uh, a classification right. program. I mean, as you know, you know, studying psychologists so much, you what's the definition of mentally handicapped? Mm-hmm. An IQ of 60, 80, 100. Right. It, every single country has their own definition that's different. There's handicap, there's deficiencies. Some totally. people are way better at some things because they have a deficiency yeah. in others. Yeah. And, and there's yeah. a spectrum on every single measurable yeah. um, you know, Absolutely. trait. So I left it up to each country to do it. <laughs> Need to get that? No. All right. I left it up to each country to do it. So that's fine. I came to the games in Sydney and we expelled the entire mentally handicapped group after the games because some athletes from Spain and from Russia weren't mentally handicapped at all. They were high level basketball players Mm -hmm. but they weren't mentally handicapped. So I went back and looked at all the classification forms. They were signed by physicians and psychologists and parents and teachers and friends so there was no rigorous 
And if we would have had that implemented, right. we may have been able to prevent it. But right. we learned. So they faked it just to get in to faked be able to get, get recognition. Oh, yeah. And was that, there was a Johnny Knoxville movie done, I think in, in the late 2000s. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but it was, it's called The Ringer. And the idea was that he, he to get into the Special Olympics, pretended to be mentally handicapped. Yeah. Um, and I don't remember it very well, but it was actually mm. done in a really strong way that represented mentally handicapped people quite well, mm. even though the premise seems appalling, you know, yeah. a movie about that. But the uh, majority of the cast was mentally handicapped, the people he was with the whole time. It was actually oh, wow. very positive for that movie. Interesting. Uh, so I wonder if there was any inspiration there from the Sydney events into this movie. Well, it could have well been. Yeah. So Because it's only been in the last Paralympic Games that they've come back, mm -hmm. you know, and it's very, very strict now. There's a very right. strict classification and there's only certain sports that they're in now. Right. Um, I wanted to ask you about doping again in the sense that are there athletes still doping? Like, are, oh, absolutely. And, and, and why is it that we're, we're not able to catch them? I, did you see Icarus? See which the movie, the documentary Icarus. Yeah, yeah. 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 What are your I thoughts think, on that? Well, I think that given the, I guess the resources that we have, they're doing a good job. But I think we could be doing a better job mm -hmm. with uh, testing. Mm -hmm. But you can't spend twenty-four hours a day going around the world, spending millions of money testing every single athlete at every sing single event. And uh, and athletes are smart. Mm -hmm. uh, I think what's happened here is that money has got in the way. Mm -hmm. Because um, an athlete winning a gold medal will become rich. Mm -hmm. The silver medal is a loser. Right. They won't get rich. Right. So there's such emphasis on the gold medal and winning and the money that's there. Even in the Paralympics now, many athletes from the various countries get paid for winning gold or silver or bronze at right. the Paralympics now. Huge money. Right. And the countries have a vested interest in it too oh. because it gives the leader, the political leadership more clout, more totally. sway amongst their people, yeah. that, that national pride that's yeah. drummed up. I mean, what better way for a government to get favor with the people oh, to put absolutely. together a successful Olympic yeah. program? And, and you're so true, Shane. And, and what's happened here is that all of a sudden now, in Canada, sport isn't that important. We don't even have a ministry of sport. Every other country around the world has a ministry of sport, mm -hmm. and it's one of the most prestigious and one of the most important ministers to have, we don't have in that. many countries. We have a Secretary of State right. hidden underneath you know, culture or whatever have you. Is that just because the leadership groups of each individual sport are so strong or is it just because we don't have that, like we don't feel a need for that unifying system? Because I feel like for me, an yeah. average Canadian, yeah. in terms of Western Canada at least, it seems to me that sports are really important. Oh, I, I think it's very, very important to athletes and to our citizenship, mm -hmm. uh, but it's never been important for egos in the as politicians oh, okay you know it's I mean health and education and all these other things are are essential mm -hmm. but sport isn't it's just a byproduct of what we do in everyday life and school and the community and all this and that I think if if sport was a ministry and there was it was a had a higher profile leader in 
running that, I think we wouldn't have the problems with obesity that we have. Mm-hmm. I think we would do better in sport mm-hmm. because right now if a sport isn't all that important to government, then it's then we're not going to do as well as we could. Um, yes, there's money that goes to the podium own the podium program, mm-hmm. and and actually that relentless woman who worked with me back there is, <laughs> runs the own the podium yeah. program and Merklinger, and uh, they don't get a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Comparatively speaking, you know, you're not going to get wealthy as an athlete trying to get to the Olympics. You know, you you can barely survive. So there's I've not seen a lot that. of. I've had a couple Olympic athletes sure, on the show, and sure. they tell me that. Yeah. So there's not a lot of money that really gets into the pockets of the Paralympic and Olympic athletes in preparation for the games. Mm-hmm. You know, they're having to work at another job, etc. That doesn't happen in many countries around the world because they know, and and why does Norway and Switzerland and places like that do better than us per capita because they invest in a right. in, in in their sport. They invest in their athletes. They've got an intentional structure. Absolutely, and they've right. got a and they've got a sport ministry mm-hmm. that makes sure that there's uh, a reasonable the right amount of money and the right amount of leadership and the right amount the best coaches to help those athletes. Mm-hmm. So it's it's just and 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 then the status boy the country leaders can now brag you know about how well they've done you mm-hmm. know and it's uh, it's very different very different mentality and and you know U.S. is the same but it, but the U.S. gets zero dollars from the government so all of theirs is private right so that can also bring in some other problems as well. Mm-hmm. The rich Competing get rich interests. Oh yeah, there's yeah. huge competition. Yeah, backdoor deals. Yeah, things like that. Yeah, so there's a lot of uh, a lot of divisiveness and collusion that takes place mm-hmm. uh, in sport down there that that we don't see here. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. So I want to ask a couple more things before we wrap up. Mm-hmm. But in in many of your biographies that I've read, there's a word that continually pops up. That isn't particularly related to sports directly, but it's it's such a recurring theme that I have to ask you about it and your thoughts on it. That word is service, and mm-hmm. it seems like everything you've done throughout your life, it's in service of this, service to these people, doing them a service. And what what is what is it about service that's important to you? What do you feel that it, it brings back to the to you and the community? Well, what it brings back to me is is just the personal gratification that you've been able to make a difference in someone else's life. You've been able to help them achieve their goal, achieve their dream. Um, throughout my life, uh, I mean, I'm not a wealthy person. Perhaps I could have been if I would have gone away from being service to saying, well, if you want my skills and expertise, it's going to cost you. Mm-hmm. You know, I, everything I've done throughout my life and all of this has been service and volunteer because I, I genuinely have a passion to make this world a better place than what I found it, mm-hmm. you know, and how many people or who I can help along the way, I will. But I'm also um, try to select or work with people who I feel can um, achieve their goals and their aspirations and, and work with organizations and groups that 
have had a raw deal, that haven't quite had the opportunity to mm. uh, to get the same the same breaks as you and I and other people. Mm-hmm. So I've been very blessed with, I, I guess, ingrained in me. Again, it's family upbringing and and uh, and also the people you meet along the way who've made an impact on you, uh, all the different mentors that you've had, uh, the different doors and windows that have that have opened. Uh, I mean, I may not have made any money doing what I've done all my life, but but my but my uh, life has been enriched because yeah. of it. Right. I mean, to travel to the countries that I've had, to work with the people that I've had, to work mm-hmm. with the athletes that I've had the opportunity to mm-hmm. do. There's no question that uh, my family sacrificed dearly because of it, because for the first. 20 years of uh, of my daughters growing up, they grew up in spite of me, not because of me. I mean, I was traveling 300,000 miles a, uh, a year. I was traveling 120 days off the continent a year, mm-hmm. every weekend or second weekend. So, uh, I mean, I didn't, wasn't able to make the kind of impact on my daughters, mm-hmm. uh, but, but we've got a very, very, very strong family. But it's because you've had a, a loving wife and two daughters that saw that I I was doing what I was happy doing. Yeah. And if they said no, you got to stay home, I'd be the most miserable <laughs> sob ever. Yeah. But it was my passion. It was, and it was there before I was married, and it was there after I was married, and it's still there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now, and maybe that's why I smother or I'm so involved with my grandchildren because I've I've seen and my grandkids now are coming 15 and 16. So the last 15, 16 years with them, I said, holy shit, I did miss a lot in right. my own kids' lives because they were, both my daughters, very successfully uh, athletically and academically and professionally. And it wasn't because of me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had that, it was just an, a real deep down feeling that I wanted to make a difference and help. Yeah. What I can certainly tell you from experience that just because you weren't there directly influencing them, I know for a fact that the work you've done around the world influencing how many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of athletes went just as far impacting them and turning them into who they are. Yeah. So I would still say it's because of you. You just happen to do it in a different way. Yeah, and 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 certainly that you know could be true, Shane, but I, you know I've always believed that it's uh, you know the famous saying, I live it every day. It's amazing what you can accomplish when no one cares who gets the credit. Mm-hmm. You've got a passion, you want to serve, mm-hmm. you want to help, you want to make a difference. And you want to leave a legacy, and that was, that was. It's always, uh, and I don't know why or how it got instilled there. There wasn't anything specifically I did. Mm-hmm. Even my the skills that I may have and the experience that I have weren't necessarily part of my plan that I set out to do. Mm-hmm. But when you did one or two, three things, 
that opened a door and a window which led to something else. It kept so the momentum. It kept, kept the momentum yeah. going. It yeah. really did. Yeah. Well, legacy is so important, obviously, to you. And, and as I think we, we age, it becomes more important to everyone. Mm -hmm. And so my, my favorite quote on legacy is, is from the New Zealand All Blacks and the, their ancient Maori ancestors of yeah. New Zealand. But it goes, your legacy isn't what's written on your tombstone. Your legacy is what's yeah. interwoven into the fibers of the yeah. people and the beings of the people that you leave behind. That's right. It and is. I think that you've done a phenomenal yeah. job yeah. of that because you've touched and impacted so many people yeah. who wouldn't have had a champion for yeah. themselves otherwise. Well, thank you. Thanks for the time. I appreciate You're it. You're welcome. We'll catch you later. That's good. That's good. Okay. That's it. City of Champions, get out there, get involved, make a difference. That's all for today.